to hear from Him. So I pray that we would never become complacent or overly familiar or dismissive of God's Word. I think um, now two weeks ago, uh, Stephen Howard taught on, on the, the passage that, that talks about Babel, and I remember laughing and thinking, wow, what, what a great point. Um, he said something to the effect of, maybe you've studied this passage before, maybe you've learned about the Tower of Babel before, maybe you've seen it in Sunday school and you get a coloring page and it looks suspiciously like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and then you color it and you hear about the origins of languages and you, you get your goldfish and your Kool-Aid and you move on, drastically unimpacted by the, by the passage. And his point was, was well taken. Sometimes we can be overly familiar with the passage and we can think we kind of know where it goes and, and, it's, and it's a little simplistic. Maybe it's Christianity 101. But I assure you, there's almost none of that in Scripture. It's so well woven and tied together. It's so deep, you cannot plumb the depths. It's described as being able to cut between the division of bone and marrow, soul and spirit. The Scriptures are alive. They never return void. And so we should, we should come ready every time we study the Word to, to, to know God's will for this life, for our lives, His revealed will. We should learn how to worship Him. What is sin? What is not sin? And so the point that Stephen gave around the study of Babel is, is, is well taken. And I think when we come to these passages that feel like, wow, it's a this person begat that person begat this person. It's like, you know, it's March in your Bible reading plan and you're stuck in the middle of genealogies. Um, it's, I assure you, instructive and interesting. My approach to the seemingly endless genealogies sometimes, especially if it's part of a devotional reading, is to pick one or two or three of those names and just chase it down. See where it goes and see what it's attached to. And sometimes it's nothing and sometimes it's fruitful. And there's a little bit of that this morning. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. You, you don't have to turn there. If you're in adult Sunday school this morning, uh, Pastor John Nicholas left you with uh, damaged finger joints and sprained them from flipping all over the, the scriptures. So it, it should come up on the screen behind me. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Even the genealogies. And that's the way that we should approach the Scriptures. That they're living, that they're active, not simplistic, not boring, not ancient, and surely can't have anything for us today. They're living and they're sharper than any two-edged sword. They pierce to the division of soul and spirit. Where's that division? I don't know, and neither do you, but they pierce it. And so what we'll study in Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 26, is not something to get past quickly, to rush through coloring in the pages. Rather, it's, it's insight into the early biblical world. We can see a lot about the timeline of, of all of life, the origins of earth and how old it might be. We get interesting insight to the ages of the various people in these stories, we see that perhaps from the generations, the way that they're provided, we see that the, the, the timelines that people would have lived descended over time, and we see some interesting overlaps in these characters if we study it carefully. 
But I pray that what we'll see is a sovereign, grace-filled, and loving God through these passages because what he is is patient. You look at the endurance of God with people and you say, how patient. Sometimes if you're a parent, you can understand sometimes you feel a little lacking patient when that snivelly-nosed little toddler that's supposedly a cute person comes through the house and destroys something you own. I remember one time, uh, perhaps some of you remember this, this object that would be in your living room. It was called a VCR for some of you. Don't know what that is, but uh, my oldest had VCR, and he had these little baby Einstein tapes. You couldn't leave without them. Baby Einstein had to go everywhere. I'm not sure if it worked on him. You'll have to ask him and judge for yourself. But he loved baby Einstein, knew how to put the, the tapes in, and, and you know, also, uh, back in the day, you used to get this little piece of paper, and it said how much money you made that week or month or quarter, however you were paid, and you'd have to take it to a building, and you'd hand it to them, and they would turn it into money in your bank. It was called a paycheck. And my son somehow combined the two. The paycheck came in the house. The check went in the VCR, which sounds like an easy problem to fix, except we didn't know it was in the VCR until maybe five or so years later when we found it there. You don't feel graceful in those kinds of moments. It feels really frustrating. Now imagine how compounded is that with a sovereign God who just says, this is my moral character. And then we just constantly violate it. Uh, the, the book of John is very helpful in that. Uh, 3.19 talks about us loving the darkness more than the light. It, it's not that sometimes we trip, fall, and we mess up. It's that we love anything that is not God. That's our natural state. Until God violates our will and makes us his and redeems our heart, takes a heart of stone, turns it to one of flesh, we're disinterested in the things of God. This is why people have to be told not to use God's name as a curse word because you're, you're, you're nailing in the hammer on, or you're hammering in a nail on the side of the wall. You hit your finger and your first move is not to yell Mahatma Gandhi. It's to take God's name in vain. What is that? Why is that innately in us? My prayer for us is that in these passages, through the study of the book of Genesis, what we find is a personal call to participate in what God is doing through us, but with fervor. Because you see, so much of what is God doing through the patriarchs, it's, it's incredible what God is doing through these generations. It's not as though each of these you know, 12 or so people that we're about to study stood up and said, here I am, God, send me. I will serve you. I'll be a part of this line. Why don't you, why don't you run it through me? It was predestined before they were ever born, before they were ever a twinkle in anyone's eye. They would be part of God's line, the patriarchal line through which he would deliver Israel, through which he would reveal his law, through which he would reveal his, his character and his moral will for all of creation, through which his character would be made known but also through which we would see fallen people who walk crooked paths used to draw straight lines. And that should encourage us. When we read the scriptures, we don't read some kind of a self-help book that tells us how to become straight. We read a book that says that we're deceitfully wicked above all things, and we can't even know our own hearts. That none seeks after God. No, not one. It doesn't paint us in a beautiful light, but it paints us in a truthful light and says, great news, though, my son Christ is my righteousness and can be yours. He can be 
to sacrifice for your own sin, which is incredible. And it was, it was first mentioned in Genesis chapter 3. And so what we should find as we study the book of Genesis is a personal call to participate in what God is doing through us with fervor. And so this passage, we won't per se study it in the way that we normally would, which is kind of read a verse, crawl through it, read a verse. And it's not because it's, it's unimportant. We'll study the context of the passages. We'll study the, the world that they were within. We'll study the implication of the nations. And then I would ask that you go back and read Genesis chapter 11 as we are ready to close it out next week. In the verses 10 through 26, we'll see a straight path to redemption through a crooked road of wobbling in the fallen men. That's why we know when, when Jesus said in John chapter 19 and verse 30, it is finished. We know there's this, this new priesthood in Christ. Hebrews chapter 7 verses 11 through 28 says, with a new priesthood comes a new law. So I would commend you to go back and, and look at that passage later, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 28. This is why Jesus said, it is finished. The sacrificial system that pointed to him was satisfied. He satisfied every jot, every tittle, dotted every I, crossed every T. That was finished. In Christ, the sacrificial system was fully and finally satisfied. He was the lamb. He is the propitious offering, which is, a, which is a great word. It's a 25 cent word. It will make you sound smart. He is the offering that stands in for you. He is, if you were to go to court and be found guilty, the one that steps aside and says, I will take on the fullness of that punishment, even though this person is indeed guilty. That's why I, I think, you know, I just like saying I think Luther I don't know if it was Luther, but I think it probably was, that said that we are snow-covered dunghills. That's not a pretty picture, but probably accurate. Jesus says, it is finished. That was the end of the road, was Christ, that, that God was drawing through these, through these nations, through these bloodlines. Before, before Christ was was Israel and the sacrificial system that we'll read about as we continue in the book of Genesis and we get to Exodus and, and Leviticus after that. Before that was believing God. You see Romans chapter 4 verses 1 through 5 talks about that with, with Abraham. He believed in God and that was counted to him as righteousness. There was these, um, God's standard has always been the same. It's always been by our faith through his own grace. And so that's never changed. God has always provided a way through faith and by his grace. The means of that faith has changed according to his unfolding plan over time. And in time, he will build the fullness of his elect. It's through the straight path of God, but the crooked journey of humanity. And if you're a believer today and you've been a believer for a while, you understand what I mean about the crooked journey. You know, you, you wake up one day and something happens. You hear the gospel presented. You, you respond to that gospel. The Holy Spirit indwells you. You become a believer, and all of a sudden you chew up everything that's in scriptures. You just you can't stop reading it. You're, you're turning the pages, and you're turning the pages. Anybody who will talk to you, which increasingly becomes less and less and less people, 
You want to tell them about Jesus. Maybe you're there, and that's fantastic. It can be, in some people's experience, that that starts to wane and fade over time. And so we need to work to become freshly excited. And I would submit to you that Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 26, can actually do that. Yes, it's a list of genealogy, but when you see what God is doing through fallen, crooked people, it is encouraging because you know yourself in some way. You know that on those days when you decide that this is going to be a fasting day and, and you're smart, so, so you, you, you fast by the night before not eating dinner and then you sleep away most of it. And then you wake up in the morning ready to go out on your journey on a fast and you get in the car and as soon as you get in the car, you put on the seatbelt and you drive out and someone cuts you off and you're immediately reminded that you are but dust. You can't even stop your heart from harboring anger towards other people. Just traffic was enough to remind you. Some of your children say weird things because of the things you say in traffic. I didn't point at anyone. I may have looked at a few of you. When we come to Genesis chapter 11, you will, you will find scholars in the world. I say scholars, I kind of put air quotes on that. Scholars in the world who would tell you that this is allegory, meaning a, a creative story. Don't, don't, don't let this be literal. This is fanciful. Of course, God didn't create everything in six days and then rest. Of course, God didn't cover the whole earth in water and kill everything in it except for a single family of eight people and then rebuild. Of course, all of these things didn't happen, they would say. This is just allegory. And when you get to chapter 12, now we're in the reality of it. I would suggest that you not shoo that away, but shoo that away. And know that nothing in Scripture should suggest, suggest that at all. There's nothing about the way that you read things normally which would suggest that this is allegory. What a horrible allegory would be a list of generations. Who had who? How long did they live? When did they die? What an awful allegory. In fact, in the book of Genesis, from chapters 1 through 11, we have four distinct genealogies. If you were to go back to Genesis chapter 4, you see a genealogy with Cain's offspring. Genesis chapter 5, you see a genealogy with the offspring of Adam. Just recently, in Genesis chapter 10, verses 1 through 32, we saw those post-flood generations of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And now, when we come to Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 26, we see yet another genealogy. And we're following in a line of the patriarchs. Now, I say this is not allegory because it isn't, but also because these genealogies aren't abandoned in Genesis chapter 11. They're referenced later in the scriptures across both the Old and the New Testament as a matter of fact, so that you would know who these lines of people were. So there's nothing in this text that should make you believe this is to be understood as allegory. It's quoted in Exodus 6, Numbers 1 and 4, Ruth 4, 1 Chronicles, and so on. Genesis chapter 1 through 11 flows directly to Genesis chapter 12 through 50. There's nothing that suggests there's a break in style, that there's a break in the story. They flow through naturally. So strange doctrines and theologies that ask you to first understand this as allegory and then 
creatively describe all kinds of things that come from silence, like the gap theory or all kinds of other pieces of nonsense. When we hear people start to do what's referred to as scripture twisting, to change it into their own definition, to make it do something that doesn't come out of a natural read, our minds should be attuned to that. We should be very, very cautious with that. that. That's how the fall originally happened. God's original command was twisted slightly and questioned on its merit. Well, did God really say that you can't eat that? I mean, look at it. Doesn't it look good? When God's word is questioned, we should hear the hissing S that I assume would be from an upright serpent. Speaking of Stephen's example from coloring pages the other day, I was always excited in kids' ministry. Brown and I did that for, for a long time together. I was always excited in kids' ministry when we would be in Genesis to see how they would depict the serpent scene. Um, and then also Revelation. Because, man, those are some cool coloring pages. Multi-eyed goats and weird creatures. Super fun. I would commend children's ministry to you. Great coloring. And also, you want to be challenged in your understanding of doctrine and theology? Have an eight-year-old ask you questions about Jesus. You'll get stretched. And so these genealogies are not abandoned. Um, we see Jesus reference them in, in the book of Matthew, chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. Jesus draws from the creation account saying, have you not read? Why would Jesus be pointing them back to allegory and saying, have you not read that this thing is so? This is how you're supposed to understand this. These are theological truths that are being presented, such as the, the death of Adam, referenced in 1 Corinthians 15 through 22. If it was allegory, why would there be all of these later references as history? This is historical. And so when you, um, I, I remember, I can't find it, but there's a, a documentary out there somewhere on, on YouTube, which is um, someone who was, who was LDS, that was a Mormon person. And they started to question some of the stories that they would read about. There were these huge wars in, in, in places and none of the battle artifacts have ever been found. There was animals on, described on continents that never lived on those continents, just factual historical errors. And if you go back, you can go to Rome. You can go to the islands that Paul was moving through. You can look at a map and trace the, the journeys that people walked through. You can go to Palestine. Careful. You can stand over the road to Damascus, but very far with the UN observers and look down on where Paul would have been converted. You can go to the hills and the tells and the mounds and look at the archaeological references to kings' names. This is not made up. This is very historical. And so it's important that we understand this rightly. There's great, deep insight into human nature in these passages as well. And one thing that jumps out from this table of nations, from these genealogies, is God's grace. God's grace is all over this. Because what is God doing through these nations? He's, he's delivering Abram, Abraham, who would bring about the 12 tribes, who would bring about a greater understanding of who God was and bring the sacrificial system that allows us to see the gravity and the severity of our own personal sin, who would usher in Christ, who would then suffer and die for sin, and who would then open the age of the church 
allowing in the fullness of the, of the Gentiles and, and offering the, the final redemption to Israel, ending the sacrificial system. God was patient through all kinds of fallen people for generations because his plan was salvation for his own glory. And so as we study Genesis 11, 10 through 26, I know I keep threatening you to do that, I promise we will. We're able to think back to the previous chapters of Genesis and we see that a single story is being told. Genesis chapter 5 provided for us that the line of Seth it's one of those, that's the third of the four genealogies in, in Genesis 1 through 11. The, the construction of those genealogies from genealogy 3 to 4 changes a bit, and the break becomes the flood. God judges all of the grave sin on the earth, restores or, or allows this family of eight, and then promises to never ju judge the entirety of the earth like that, again, gives the symbol of the bow, which the world has, has repurposed. And so, even the telling of these genealogies, when we pay careful attention, changes a little bit, slightly, in their structure post-flood. It's almost like it goes from kind of a, a dire situation where you read the genealogy. It says this person was born. They lived for this long. They begat these people. This was the span of their life, and they died. And that last portion, and they died, is missing. It's almost like the pace is picking up. Hope is building as we're getting closer to Abraham after the flood. God is drawing a straight path to redemption through crooked, wobbling fallen path of men. We're looking forward post chapter 10 to Abraham and things are changing. In chapter 5, we have that construction that always ends with, and he died. We have Adam fathering Seth, Seth to Enosh, Enosh to Canaan, Canaan to Mahaliel, Mahaliel to Jared, Jared to Enoch, Enoch to Methuselah, and then we get a footnote in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 24 about Enoch. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And then we move to Lamech, and then we get to Noah. And after Noah was 500 years old, that's pretty old, 500. I don't know what kind of hobbies you have after 500 years on earth. Maybe you just like, you just stop. Right? You're like, all right, I've done it all. I'm just waiting to die. After 500 years, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Can you imagine how good you'd be at chess after 500 years? Like, probably nobody wants to play you anymore. Just like, now nah, I'm good. It's like playing uh, tic-tac-toe with kids at Cracker Barrel. It's just, it's a little too easy. Until the first time they beat you and you refuse to ever play again. 500 years of life, I think we'll do that. When we get to Noah, we are now uh, 10 steps past Adam. And so you see this, this table allows us to see, it allows us to get some understandings about how old is the earth. We've got this wonderful line of generations preserved for us. We're going to be able to compare this. If you were to sit down and really do some work, you can see how many overlapping lives there are. Who would have known whom? You get to say, well, who, who would have been alive 
um, from the time of the flood to carry that message down to these uh, patriarchs. And then you get to start to think, well, why, why did some of these patriarchs become, become pagans? Abraham wasn't born into a, a, a worshiping family. They'd become pagans already by this point. How is that possible? And that should compel us to think about the grace and the mercy of God. He, he doesn't judge us on our merit. If he did, some of you, me included, would be in grave trouble. If God looked upon the condition of our heart and went to pick those that would be good, and as we said this morning in the told Sunday School, good is determined by, by, by God's moral standard. And it's not like he has a list of things that you might have done, and if, if you did them, you're out. It's, do you live up to his character? That's why Jesus would, would say when he was teaching, if, you're, if you've been mad at your brother in your heart, then you're already guilty of murder. God is not impressed that we restrain ourselves, and that's what we spend so much time teaching children to do, which is live in civil society. Some of you who are parents have had a biter, and you know what I mean by that. You have the kid that the daycare calls and says, hey, your kid bit someone, and you're just like, gosh, really? That's embarrassing. And you didn't teach them that. You didn't say, hey, listen, Timmy, here's what happens. If somebody really starts getting over on you or takes your toy, I want you to bite them in the arm so it leaves it like a circle. Or some of you, maybe you didn't have a biter. Maybe you had the kid that just learned to spell their name. And when they go to write on the walls in the house, guess what they write? Their name. You know, in a family of five, it makes it easy to find which one they are. It's actually kind of fun to ask them, did you, did you draw on the wall? Person whose name is written horribly on the wall? We don't have to teach that. It's innate. What we teach is resist the thing that you want to do. Because in civil society, we can't go out and do whatever our heart desires because our heart is deceitful and wicked. It's why some of you have had a boss who's horrible. It's why some of us have relationships and have had relationships that are strained. It's why there's people that have been abused. The one thing that I just, I can't, there's a lot that I look at sin and I'm like, yeah, I don't do that, but I mean, I get it. Crimes against children, I have no place or patience for. I do not understand it. You can't explain that to me without wickedness, evil, and sin. And somehow, by His grace, God is, is patient to see through his plan. And we see that in the patriarchs. These are not heroes. I mean, they are you know, heroes of the faith, whatever that means. They're not heroes. They're not personal heroes. We shouldn't see the, the people of the Bible and say, I just want to be like that person. We should see Christ. And say, I want to imitate. If I'm imitating anyone, it's because they're imitating Christ. Jesus is penultimate. If you want to know what would perfect moral character look like in this life, among this life, with all the tests and the trials that we have, look to Christ. And so now with Noah, we're 10 steps from Adam in the lineage. We're going to see Shem. He's going to be step 11. That's where we pick up with our, with our lineage. And the structure continues through until we get to Terah, and Abram is number 20. The structures change. I said it's a little bit enlightening because we have the, the, the portion about and he died ends. In our passage today, the generations from um, Adam to Abram are interrupted by the flood, and, and, and the tempo, the pace, the, the positivity changes. Um, 
what we see in the line that leads all the way to Abraham is, is, is God is paving a way for his, for his church to be constructed through Christ by his purposes and election. So, so what do I mean by election? Um, there's a lot of people who don't like the doctrine of election. You may be uncomfortable with it as you sit right now. I would suggest you sit down with your concordance. You write down all the locations where the word election is written. You take an exacto knife and you cut it out and then look at what you've done to the word. It is absolutely everywhere. It, you know, Paul didn't celebrate the church in Berea and say they, they, they listened to the word, they compared it to how they felt, and then they changed it based on their feelings. So they looked at the word, they heard the word taught, they compared it to the word and to see if it was so. Is that God's revealed will? That should be our only question. Is that God's revealed will? If it is, then I will work to temper or to change my emotions or my understanding. But at the end of the day, my only question is, what has God said? That's all I can trust. What has God said? I cannot trust my heart that's deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. I cannot trust my understanding of fair and true. I can trust God at his word. And the scriptures provide me example after example after example of how he can be wholly and perfectly trusted with my absolutely everything. That's faith. This morning, as we're going through a, an acronym called TULIP, um, it's total depravity, limit atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. It's a, just, a, just an acronym to be helpful to lay out some doctrines, doctrines of grace, however you want to receive those. And we talked about the view that says that God doesn't elect some for salvation based on what they'll do in the future. That wouldn't be election. That, that would be looking through the corridor of time, right? Maybe, maybe you've heard things described that way. God looks through the corridor of time, sees who will choose him, and then he calls them elect. That's kind of gymnastics. Right? That's, that's an impressive act on the parallel bar, but doesn't hold up to the scriptures in the way that they describe how God saves. And we don't pray to God as though he looks down the quarter of time. No one prays, as, as Pastor John Nicholas said this morning, God, I pray that you would have seen that my mom had been good ultimately in the quarter of time and that then you would recognize her goodness and she would have already been the elect because she will choose you. We pray to a very sovereign God. God, save my mom. That's our prayers. God draws a straight path to redemption through crooked, wobbling, fallen humanity. And this is why God provides great care in the telling of his miraculous works leading up to the age of the church so that we would not be free to inaction, so that we would be inspired to action. The question came up this morning, if, if God elects, why evangelize? I'll tell you why you evangelize, because you never know who he's elect. Oftentimes... Maybe you would evangelize somebody that looks like they're right on the cusp. They look pretty good. I remember one time in New Mexico, we were walking through a trailer park, and I talked to a guy, and I was like, hey, man, what's going on? And he's like, well, um, I just got out of prison, and when I got out of prison, I realized that uh, someone shot my uh, pregnant girlfriend and her father, and now they're both dead, and I'm on my way to kill him. True story. Maybe you let that guy go. He's clearly not elect, right? But the gospel says the word doesn't return void. If this guy is elect, then my responsibility 
is to share the gospel, to share the good news without abandon to anyone who will listen and to those who will not. Because I'm not looking for the almost good enough. I'm looking for people with ears. God can draw a straight path with a crooked stick. John, you said that, right? <laughs> we'll get there. I will give credit. It wasn't Nicholas. It was me. So, I would argue then that the doctrine of election, but also this passage that gives a list of names should inspire us to be diligent disciples full of action. In fact, our lives should burn with purpose for God and his kingdom. And what we're reading in this passage laid the groundwork for the church. So we should then ask ourselves, is the way that we live worthy of this groundwork? And I don't ask that to say, I hope you pass the test and the way that you live is worthy of this groundwork. It's kind of irrelevant. It's just a good question to constantly keep before yourself. It's not a test of salvation. It's introspective. It looks for fruit in your lives. And then when it doesn't find fruit, it says, God, will you bless me by shoring that up? I want to be able to have more opportunity uh, to be able to share of your goodness and your grace and your mercy with people. I want to be encouraged by the body. I want them to kind of plug up to me. I want them to point out areas in my life where I'm falling a little bit short. What a blessing is that? When you've got the safety of your brothers and sisters in Christ, you say, hey, man, you've been kind of falling off a little bit over here. What a blessing is that? They wouldn't let you get too far away from God. Scriptures talks about in, in the end times that the people's consciences will be seared by the insincerity of liars. You know what terrifies me about that? Because it means your conscience can be seared. I don't know if you've ever seared yourself, like you've had a really bad burn, but oftentimes when that blister goes away, I know because one time I was standing with a pot of boiling ramen and, and it poured over my finger, and so I got a really bad ramen injury, and it hurt so bad that I literally had to sleep with my hand in a glass of water with ice in it. And, and I would wake up at night and my hand would just be throbbing. Probably should have seen a medical professional, but this is the story of my life. I wake up, my hand would be throbbing. I had to go get more ice and, and, and put it in there. Right? And it was this massive blister. The thing looked like a balloon. It was really gross. And then when it, when it healed, it, there was, a, there was a, a searing to my finger. To this day, if I rub the top of it, it doesn't feel the same as the other finger. I can feel pressure but not feeling. Now imagine a conscience like that. Your conscience. The thing that's supposed to be the alarm that says sin is coming. This is a problem. It, it, it's how the Holy Spirit communicates with us. It reminds us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now if you continue and you continue and you continue in sin, your very conscience can get seared. How terrifying is that? I don't want that. It's not a performance thing. Like, I'm not good enough for God because, you know, my conscience has been seared. It's a relational thing. It pushes me further away from my God, who I say I love and I cherish more than anything in this life. And so where you see that in me, I want you to have a conversation with me on the side. And I will admit, my personality will immediately tell you you're wrong. But I'll think about it later and I'll pray. That's a character flaw. I'm not bragging about that. 
But what a blessing that God gives us the fellow people in the body of the church, one another, who call each other throughout the week and say, hey, how are you? I'm not, it's not always correction, right? We're not legalists. We're not trying to feed each other. We're not self-flagellation. We're not happy unless we're unhappy. We meet up and go do things and have fun and go to one another's houses, spend time together, enjoy one another. And then people who are outside look and say, what is this group of very strange people spending time together for? You know, the analogy I love would be like if we all just went outside one day and stared up at the sky on the sidewalk. People walking by would stop and they would look and they'd say, well, what are you looking at? That's worship. Worship isn't for us per se. We enjoy it. Love worshiping our God, but it makes people look in and say, what are they, what are they doing? That's odd. They're worshiping the creator, their God. God gives great care in telling us the story of his work in building the church to inspire us to be full of action. Love that we lose the and he died portion that we've become so familiar with, moving from post-flood to Abraham, quickly transitioning us from this desperate condition of the pre-flood world by making us focus on, on the future. Um, making us focus on the coming of, of Abram, on, the, on, on, on Abraham, on, on the father of Israel. Father Abraham, you know the dance. It's Some of you, it's in your head right now. Father Abraham had many sons. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9 reads like this. This is Jesus speaking. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. It says, Pastor John Nicholas said this morning, we pray to God as though he's sovereign for our friends and our family because we believe that he can change their hearts. Genesis chapter 10, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 26. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered a Shad. Two years after the flood. So it's important to know that, that we're after the flood. Things have, have changed, right? The generations are, are, are rebuilding, and you can, you can sound smart in, in a crowd and group of people if you want to say post-Diluvian. We're starting with Shem, and it, it follows a, a similar pattern to Luke chapter 3, the way that these generations um, are told. After 35 years, he fathered... Selah, and then lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And then fathered Eber, lived 403 years, had other sons and daughters, fathered Peleg, 430 years, had other sons and daughters, fathered Ryu, 209 years, had other sons and daughters, fathered Sirig, 207 years, had other sons and daughters, Fathered Nahor, lived 200 years, had other sons and daughters. Note that the span of life is, is decreasing here. We're getting away from the 900-year-olds, the 800-year-olds, to the, to, the, to the young, spry, bushy-tailed 400-year-olds. And Father Terah, 119 years, who fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the 
the timeline that we see, this is the, the genealogy that's flowing. And this finalizes us from Noah to Abraham. And we can stack these folks up and look at the number of years that existed between them and who could have existed with whom at the same time. Noah, who would have been Abram's great, 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 great grandfather, would have died maybe two years or so before Abram. Think about that. Two years for your great, 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 great grandfather. Most of you couldn't tell me if pressed what your great, great grandfather's name was. What an incredible thing that God allowed during this, this time period to pass kind of that, that family information on about being God worshipers. And then at the same time, how incredible to think everyone wasn't. Can you imagine being so keenly and personally aware of the complete and utter destruction of the earth down to eight people and then being anything other than a worshiper of God? Which is fascinating because perhaps we're even more aware of it than they were or some of the generations after because we have the entirety of Scripture. We get to know what God was doing and we get New Testament commentary on what the purpose was for this. So then what do we learn in this historical theology of Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 26? Earlier we said if you, if you pay attention, you find God's grace his perseverance, his endurance, and ultimately his purpose, which is finding or providing the way on to glory, building the line all the way to Abraham who would create the 12 nations, who would receive the law, who would you know, build tents and move around worship and continue the sacrificial system until the time of Christ, who would then bring the Gentiles in along with the rest of the world and then leave the responsibility on the church to go out and make disciples of many nations. As we said this morning from Matthew 28. That's the call. That's the responsibility. We are not without responsibility. If we were without responsibility, we would either not be born and go straight to glory, or we would hit salvation and then boom, straight up we go off the face of the earth. But we're left behind because we have a purpose, and that purpose is to make God tangible and knowable to a watching world around us. If you've known me for more than a year or so, you've heard this, so endure it. It's the best way I know to describe this concept, which is we as people of the church, we as redeemed people, we are to magnify God, to magnify God, which sounds strange when you think about God as ethereal, he's unknowable, he's the creator of the entire universe. How can I magnify someone or something so magnificent? And it's in the same way that magnification works, not with the magnifying glass where you look at ants and pieces of sand that takes something small and makes it big enough to be seen. It's more like a telescope where you go outside and you orient it on the surface of the moon and you can enjoy the surface. You can take that thing that's so big and so far away and you can bring it a little bit closer so that you can appreciate the details. So are we as believers. As we actively live as Christ, imitating him, living as people who, who have these fleshly bodies among those who are, who are without any path to God, making him in some ways tangibly known, and then sharing the gospel to pull in the, the fullness of the elect. That's why we're here. That's, that's our job. That's why we exist, is to glorify God and then enjoy him forever. But we should seek to glorify him in this life. As Thomas Watson said, God can strike a straight stroke 
with a crooked stick. That's what we do when we evangelize. Spoiler alert, you're the crooked stick, and so am I. But by his grace and his mercy, God is able to draw a straight path as we're obedient to him, as we share from his word, as we evangelize, as we tell people, look, I am not what you should be looking at. Generally in my life and in my experience, that is not the confusion people have. It's Christ. He lived in all ways like you, tempted in those ways where you've fallen so miserably. And God does not expect that you won't fall. In fact, he provides a path in Christ to be redeemed, remade, reborn, renewed, and transformed over time. It's not performance. It's awe in Christ. It's seeing that you're fallen short of God's glory and, and reaching out and clinging to Christ for your everything. And clinging is even a terrible analogy. That's what we do, but really it's he who holds us. Jesus says, none of these that the Father has given me will escape from my grip. Nothing can separate you who are in Christ from the love of God. Nothing, nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God. You don't have to take my word for it, it's scripture. So we should then be inspired to be diligent disciples full of action. Our lives should burn with purpose for God and for his kingdom. And, and maybe you just, you wake up and you don't feel that every morning. Neither do I, right? Neither do I. Our lives are set with purpose on Christ. He becomes our Lord and our Savior. And so sometimes we do things as a matter of discipline, just like every other area in your life. I have a sign on my desk that says, eat the frog. We just do the, the horrible thing that you don't want to get done and just do it first. And get that out of the way, and then everything feels easy. Sometimes we need to apply a matter of discipline in our lives to, 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 to read, to pray, to do devotion. And I will come in to you, do that. Do that. Don't let yourself fall into some trap where everything has to feel great and fluffy and easy in order to do it. That's a lie. That is not so. Spend time. Be in devotion. Do not allow yourself to drift. Genesis is our history steeped in grace, perseverance, endurance, and ultimately we get to see the fulfillment of God's purpose. So I pray then that we would be inspired to be diligent disciples full of action whose lives burn with purpose. What we're reading in Genesis lays the groundwork for the church. And so we should ask, is our life worthy of the groundwork? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you do, in fact, draw straight lines with, with crooked sticks because, God, that's all we've got. 